0: Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Richard Brennan and I, Niels Karstblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Rich, it is great to have
1: you back this week. How are you doing? What's going on down under? All good, Niels. Getting a bit warmer over here and um, warmer in a lot of ways. One is the weather, of course, which is starting to pick up a bit and we're probably going to get blasted like uh, you guys in Europe were blasted recently with the hot weather, but, you know, uh, being the eternal pessimist, most people are worried about climate change over here and they're saying that, uh, you know, they're worried that Europe's experienced the hottest year in 100 years. But I tend to say that that's the glass half full talking. What about the glass half empty or, or the other way around, the alternative, that it's the coolest year in the next 100 years? You know, that that's a more optimistic way of viewing climate change, but anyway the, the the eyes in australia at the moment they're focused on china um our dependence with china is fairly extreme um export import etc um the mining resources from australia over to china etc and we're we're seeing a bit a bit of shakiness in china particularly in their property areas um so uh, we're a bit concerned about that over here and um yeah, so things are quaking a bit. Uh, we're seeing that a, a bit of movement in the markets um, associated with that level of uncertainty with China. So that, that's that's a, a sum up at the moment, Niels, of where we're standing over here in Aussie land.
0: Yeah, the whole geopolitical situation is something that I'm fascinated by, and the changes that's uh, taking place. In fact, in a few weeks, we're going to have a really interesting guest on the uh, on the podcast. Um, someone who's just written a book about how China invests all of their FX reserves, uh, which is quite interesting in light of what's taking place and the focus that China and its, let's say, weakening economy is getting at the moment. Um, so I uh, I fully uh, embrace your, uh, your concern. Anything else? I mean, I always love to hear sort of what's been on your radar, but besides that, uh, the weather, China, is there anything else that you have picked
1: up? This year, this, this last year, Eight months. Um, it's been a turbulent roller coaster for me. It's still sitting effectively at break even. I might just be slightly above break even for the year, but it's really been a, a, a turmoil roller coaster. Um, and I'm seeing the portfolio, the battleship, you know, different areas of the portfolio light up um, at different times of the year. So I was looking at a heat map today of my performance over the last six months and where it's sitting today. And I just noticed that the heat map was, um, you know, there was a couple of strong areas all showing green, and that was my orange juice and my London sugar for the year. That, that's been there've been strong supporters for um, the portfolio over the last six months. But there's a lot of red in there as well. And the heat map, um, it, interestingly, this month I'm starting to see a bit of green coming in areas of the portfolio that I haven't been relying on much in the past. So. You know, when I do my monthly analysis of my portfolio, I always sort things alphabetically um, to do the monthly reports. And traditionally, I've found that it's the last half of the sorted portfolio that's been the heavy lifter of my portfolio. But this month, I'm seeing the first half of my portfolio start to take over with the heavy lifting, which to me, sitting here in Australia with China, uncertainty and things like that, is saying... Well, the portfolio is doing a lot of dynamic shifting. Um, it might not be getting far, but it's adjusting. It's adjusting to a new regime. Something's happening, uh, and the portfolio is sniffing it out. It might not be showing in performance wise, but it's adjusting. And uh, I'm seeing this. So, this is actually making me quite optimistic about the future. Maybe there is uncertainty ahead. So, when I listen to your great podcast with with Jim Kazan, and uh, especially uh, the the Neil Howe podcast on the fourth turning, you know, it's all starting to click in my head and the light bulbs are going off that, you know, there is perhaps uncertainty ahead. So, uh, this is from my perspective uh, everyone hates uncertainty of course and you know I, I I don't wish to bring uncertainty upon people but for a trend following portfolio uncertainty is what really kicks it into gear so yeah
0: yeah I mean this leads me to a, a couple of points before we really uh, dive into the usual topics uh, I, I think first of all you're right that when I listen to uh, Jim as well talking about the way he sees it from a volatility perspective but also from a non one hundred percent systematic. He has some rules, uh, no doubt, um, but it is interesting to hear him describe things and then try to relate it back to what we see as as systematic investors. Uh, and I think you're right. I mean, I think, I mean, obviously, what he has been describing to some extent. Although it was interesting when I spoke with Jim, and we released that episode before we released the one with Neil Howe. Uh, Jim doesn't. Totally agree with Neil Howe in terms of increased volatility, and 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 people need to go back and listen to that uh, uh, reasoning. But then when I uh, listened to Neil Howe talk about this, and and I should say that I I picked up his work a few years back, the first the first book uh, called the Fourth, Fourth Turning, and I think a lot of what he does and describes obviously are based on quote unquote things we can go back and and check, and it really did pan out. But the Interesting thing was, of course, that the book originally, the, the Fourth Turning, was written in 1997. So before this current Fourth Turning. So, of course, it's been very interesting to see in real time, did it actually pan out the way they described it in the in the book? And it has, in my view, really played out that way. So for him to come back now and talk about how he sees The Fourth Turning ending... And people should realize that the ending of the fourth turning, even though it started with the great financial crisis, which was, of course, incredibly uncertain, a massive crisis on global scale, it's the last part that's going to be the worst part. And so I I share your view that I think the world, um, and we can already sense it, is becoming more uncertain, even though many institutions are doing their level best to keep things calm. Um, and to some extent, they are. But I think it's brewing beneath that. And uh, I certainly fear that we can see things. And I think Neil shared that on the on the in the conversation. Maybe it was also after the we we stopped recording, he actually thinks that some of the stuff that we believe would be really bad. He thinks that could be a good outcome, actually. So in terms of uncertainty, in terms of, finding investment strategies that would be well-suited to have in your portfolio over the next 10 years as we go through the final part of the fourth turning. Of course, we're incredibly biased, but I think there's a a reasonable objective argument to say that um, non-predictive strategies that thrives on the edge of chaos, which we will come to today, is not a bad thing. Coming back to your other point about your battleship, Um, I was looking up, I pulled up actually as we speak, I pulled up the trend barometer on my website uh, from the, uh, it goes back one year uh, on a chart. And it's very clear to see how it's been struggling to move out of the neutral zone. It's really been um, incredibly flat in many ways. So you could say overall performance wise, it's completely in line with what, what what we're seeing there. I also looked at the other thing, which is then the trend barometer for for, for the, each individual market, just to see, does the barometer actually kind of find or confirm what we see as trend followers in our portfolios? And I note, for example, this is will be close to your home, and you can confirm whether you think that's true. I mean, uh, um, one of the markets that it's seeing, you know, a general good short trend in is uh, the Aussie dollar. And I think looking at the chart, that's probably true. Also goes for the Canadian dollar, so in the FX space, there's a couple there. Now, it doesn't track the Mexican peso. I'm sure it would have been uh, showing a green light uh, for for that. Then it's showing a a fairly um, strong trend downwards on short-term U.S. interest rates, and I think that's perfectly in line with what we see. Gold, a little bit surprised maybe, but it is showing a bit of a, a downtrend in gold, and then on to the upside, the two strongest trends in, in, in those 44 markets, and it is only 44 markets, is from the energy sector. So gas oil and heating oil showing um, good strong trends in those. And that's also, again, looking at the models that I'm close to, uh, pretty pretty accurate. Um, we have a short uh, um, confirmation from the trend barometer in, in the yen. I think that's uh, pretty accurate as well. And then the other f- sort of with some conviction is 10-year is, um, uh, U.S. bonds that's also uh, having a short exposure. So I think, interestingly enough, these things correspond pretty well with what's going on inside a real trend-following portfolio. But it finally leads me to the point you said, well, you know, performance-wise hasn't been, you know, not much to write about this year. And then I read the f- Financial Times. Um, they had an article yesterday as, as they would do, of course, at a time where performance is not necessarily as strong as last year, they're now focusing on kind of CTA struggling in the year yeah, What's happening to
1: trend followers? You know, why it, can't exactly. they do what they did in 2022, for goodness yeah. sake?
0: And yeah. it is very classic that they will pull that out just because performance is flat this year. And of course, they'll pinpoint a couple of specific managers that are maybe down a, a, a few percent this year, which, of course, is Completely um, uh, non-important, um, since we're looking at investment horizons that goes for decades, really, in order to get the full uh, benefit of of what we do. Like with any other investment strategy, by the way, you can't just look at six months and say, "Oh yeah, it's definitely
1: uh, you know not working." So. And they're picking the worst examples of year, you know, for the particular yeah. performance for the the year to date, which, uh, you know, it's a stretch, isn't it? It is a bit of a stretch. Anyways, it was, of course, a
0: week where journalists was focused on busy covering the central bank's annual get-together. But, of course, for for the for those of us who have strategies that don't pay attention to the news, it was actually a fairly quiet week overall. Maybe even a little bit of a positive week for some, certainly uh, from where I'm sitting. Uh, generally speaking, though, there was a bit of divergence still inside the markets in terms of attributions I did notice that um, fixed income in Europe didn't do so well. What fixed income markets in, U- in the U.S. Um, did better. Uh, so there's a little bit of divergence in there. Currencies were also pretty mixed. Mexican peso, no surprise, still, still keep giving some positive attributions to the portfolio. Equities, okay, not 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 massively up, um, and that was despite the gyrations we saw in the markets leading into or leading up to. I guess it's called. Powell's uh on Friday. Um, yeah, other than that, it's pretty quiet. Iron Ore, I think, did pretty well this week, if I was
1: going to mention one other market. My equities are giving me a slap around the chops at the moment. So, uh, you know, well, I might talk about the joy of certain things, but um, equities has given me a bit of pain at the moment. So,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, they are correcting a little <laughs> bit away from there. All time, not all time highs. Well, I guess all time highs. There's still a few percent away, but who knows? It'll be interesting. Um, my own trend barometer did finish at 36, so confirming uh, as we talked about earlier, it's not a it's not a strong trend environment so far. And as of Thursday, I think Friday was an okay day. So, but as of Thursday, beat of 50, down 60 basis points for the month, down about 1.1 percent for the year. and so CT index down 40 basis points for the month. Down one and a half percent for the year. Gen Trend Index down one percent for the month and down two and a half for the year. And the short-term traders index struggling a bit more, down about seventy basis points for the month, down three point seven percent for the year. Having said that, you know MSCI World is down almost five percent this month. Still up twelve ish for the month. Uh, sorry for the year. Bonds struggling again. Positively correlated. They're down again. Uh, down ninety-one basis points this month. For the world government bond index and the S and P five hundred down four percent, but up almost fifteen percent for the year. Biggest news this week was this morning when I saw a fellow Dane being sent to the International Space Station. How about that? Congratulations! Small country. Small country. We now have a man also. Big um, things from small countries. Yeah. Anyways, let's get serious. Let's um, first um, answer a question that came in from Corey. Corey asks, if an investor is heavily weighted towards equities, which I think most are, are they better off with trend-following providers that don't include equities as one of the utilized asset classes? In the short run, in a big sudden negative equity move, it seems the answer may logically be yes, so your trend-following allocation isn't court long, but over the longer period of negative equity returns, being able to short equities could be a positive. Has this been studied, analyzed, question mark? What are your thoughts? Now, of course, we didn't do a specific study for this, but we do want to weigh in in terms
1: of our thoughts. So over to you, Rick. Yeah, so um, look, as, as we know, Niels, um, with your CTA mini series with Alan, a lot of the um, – the CTAs there, um, they're focusing their their opportunities to how they can plug in their trend-following portfolio into a traditional portfolio. And I noticed that a lot of the CTAs were saying, yes, we take the existing equity exposure of the traditional portfolio into account and we will We might exclude equities from our models um, when we we develop allocations into them, um, into those particular models. And look, I I see where that's coming from. But also, I'd just like to say that the buy and hold model is different to the trend following model. So um, whilst there might be equity exposure with a traditional buy and hold portfolio, um, I don't necessarily think it contradicts the addition of trend following also in equities because the systems deployed for the trend following models, both long and short, do provide significant correlation benefits to a traditional portfolio, even though it might be overweight in equities. So it's an interesting one, and obviously research has got to be done, which I haven't done because... As you know, Niels, I'm 100% trend following and I would never dare to even consider having a traditional portfolio um, to to invest in um, because I'm all trend following. But for most, I'd say, investors, that is a question and there needs to be research done in that area. It would be interesting, but yeah, so I don't necessarily think it contradicts the ability to put and uh, a trend-following portfolio in equities into a traditional equities-heavy portfolio because of the different approaches. But I do recognize that a lot of your CTAs have specifically excluded equities in their portfolios to make them more appealing for um, investment allocators to um, invest their, their uh, allocations into traditional portfolios.
0: Yeah, a-, a couple of thoughts on that. Um I don't know how many I think have done that. I do know that some of the big uh, firms today they offer some kind of like building, you know, blocks uh, approach where investors can kind of put together their own version of 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 a uh, trend following portfolio. Um, I'm not so sure that that that's what investors are best at. Uh, frankly, uh, I think that's our job to produce the best version of what our systems can do. But, and, and of course, if, you, if you're like yourself and some other people where you ignore correlations within your portfolio once the trade is, is on, you, you look at it when you select the markets perhaps, but, but you ignore correlations once, once the, it's, it's in the portfolio. Now, for those of us, including a firm like Don, where we do pay attention to correlation, if you exclude a sector like equities it has massive implications for other positions. It's not just about being long equities or being out of equities or being short equities. It's about what that dynamic does to the overall portfolio. It could have a very meaningful effect on how much risk we could take uh, in fixed income from time to time. So I don't think it's such an easy discussion. And I think, unfortunately, that these things are simplified to an extent where we, where we miss the big picture. So for some people to say, well, I already have my equities, so I don't need a trend follower that trades equities. I'm not so sure that's the right decision. But in any event, what they should do is of course to at least do an analysis of the track record of the fund they're considering or the strategy they're considering to see if it has an impact. Because as well as as, as you and I uh, well know, if there is a crisis, as Corey re, uh, uh, refers to, Sometimes, even though we may may often be long equities at the time it arrives, we may still make money from other positions. But if we didn't have the equities, we may not have the same exposure. We could have had a, a, a different exposure uh, in those other markets because of these correlation effects that I mentioned. And therefore, we can't be certain and say, well, it, it would have been a better outcome. And then, of course, then there's this, the thing about the long run. In the long run, I think we all believe that all markets have the same ability to trend. And that in the long run, we should be able to make more or less the same money in all markets. And therefore, there is a positive expectancy from the equity sector as well, even though we may have a period of five or seven years where it doesn't really add a lot. Um, so I'm not, I'm not a big fan personally. Uh, in trying to cherry pick, and because every time you introduce this saying, "Oh, I don't want this; I do like that," you start predicting the future. And if there's one thing I don't believe we can is predict the future. Well, I'm glad you just took a sip of water because I think from now on, it's a lot of it is is you is you talking us through some really good, uh, solid topics that will bring us back to the foundations of trend following. Um, and kind of a deep dive into absolute momentum and also uh, its path-dependent nature. Now, trend following has, you know, often been referred to in the academic literature as a class of momentum approach, referred to as absolute momentum. Um, But you're going to discuss what this really means from your perspective and also how this can be differentiated or distinguished from the other class of momentum approach referred to as cross-sectional
1: momentum. So why don't we just start with that and see where we go? All right, Niels. So it's going to be another journey, this podcast. Um, so effectively, the academic literature um, in in discussing trend following has typically referred to um, uh, the the trend-following style as being a, an approach called absolute momentum. Now, what that means is that you're looking at a time series and you are catching momentum across that time series, the individual return stream, a time evolution of that that return stream. So when we're trading um, something like um, orange juice or or, or, or One of those markets, we're looking at momentum that exists within the orange juice market itself, what we refer to as endogenous properties that lie within that market itself. Now, the alternative approach to momentum, which is also cited in academic studies, is called cross-sectional momentum. And that's where, instead of looking things from a, a time evolution perspective and within a return stream itself... It's looking cross-sectionally across return streams. So it's looking exogenously outside individual return streams to the relationships that exist spatially between different return streams. So if if we're looking at uh, a portfolio and we look at the return streams in a portfolio, let's say from 2000 to current day, 23 years, We'll notice when we plot those return streams in that, that time series, we get, um, if we're trading 70 markets, we've got 70 distinct return streams over that time horizon. So if we are looking cross-sectionally, we are looking vertically across those return streams, like a cross-section taken, and looking at the relationships that exist between the return streams. So um, correlations, for instance, between return streams is a spatial Uh, relationship that exists between markets. But also we can get correlations within the return stream in the time series, these endogenous properties, which relates to serial correlation, how time, how momentum at an earlier time influences momentum at a later time. So having these two perspectives of one being cross-sectional and one being time-orientated you can see that there are two different approaches to viewing momentum. And a cross-sectional approach will, will, will necessarily target a different form of trend than um, an absolute approach, a time series approach. So in my world of outliers, where I'm looking at these endogenous properties that exist within the markets themselves that give rise to these Serially correlated explosions in directional property and enduring trends. I'm looking for absolute momentum that resides in the serial correlation, the time-dependent correlation properties of that return stream. But for someone who's looking at um, the, the the correlations between asset classes or trends that that um, which trends to select within different asset classes, they're looking cross-sectionally and saying, all right. Uh, If we look across markets, we might find that there are certain trends, which when I evaluate using measures such as rate of change, I see that these trends are particularly strong in this asset class. These trends are particularly weak in this asset class. So they're looking cross-sectionally at the relationships between those trends. And the trends that they capture are what I call the trends that float all boats. In other words, the primary trends uh, that might emanate from a, a, an individual asset in an asset class whose infection spreads across related markets or or um, uh, correlated markets to lift them as well. So that's like a tide that floats all boats. That's a pretty good expression that ex- it describes that. So, if you use
0: cross-sectional momentum, does it mean that your signal is impacted about, uh, from other markets? And or would you also say cross-sectional means that if because of correlations, your exposure, meaning not the signal, but just simply the position size might get adjusted because of correlation relationships, would you also refer to that as cross-sectional momentum or is that something different?
1: In this interpretation, yes, I'm getting at the same points. What you're describing there is how I'm – if I said someone was thinking cross-sectionally, that's what I'd say they'd be doing. What they'd be doing is they'd either be selecting the best trending asset in an asset class and saying that's the one that is most likely to endure in the future because it's exhibiting the best relative strength in the class of trends that are available in that asset class, Or I'd say at the portfolio level, a portfolio manager who is adjusting position sizes based on the correlation properties that spatially exist in their portfolio, that would be a cross-sectional approach. So if you could imagine, um, this brings it down to these two broad classes of momentum, which create different philosophies, different approaches. To the market. And we obviously had um, Gary Antonacci uh, putting out his book called Dual Momentum, which was looking at his models actually trading both classes of momentum the cross sectional and the absolute. So the reason uh, I'm an outlier hunter, which is putting me in a sort of different kettle to some other trend followers, is some other trend followers like. For instance, TransTrend. Um, a lot of these uh, big big CTAs who are looking at things slightly differently to how I'm looking at it, they will have different models, different methods to mitigate their risk depending on which class of momentum they're focusing on. So cross-sectionally, we can apply risk management methods like altering position sizes um, to reduce correlation exposure spatially across that asset class. But someone in the absolute momentum class would say, hey, we don't adjust spatially. We are looking for absolute momentum. So we will apply a fixed stop and, and the spatial guy will say, hey, why use stops? We can mitigate our risk through adjusting our sizes in our portfolio and the correlation properties. You're wasting it on all on your stops. And we say, no, because we are looking up in absolute momentum terms, we must mitigate our absolute um, adverse risk serially. And therefore, we want to cut our losses short at all times along that serial time evolving trajectory through techniques such as small bet, trailing stop, initial stop. We're thinking um, in time evolution, how how a series, a, a system evolves over time. We're not looking at how the collection of systems all relate to each other. So this sets in place a diametrically opposed viewpoint, which might lead to lots of arguments. And I just wanted to say, well, if we're looking at it from these different approaches, there's a way to resolve this and just respect the fact that there is this other class of momentum that exists to what Another philosophy might be saying, and there is a happy environment where we can, we can say, yes, let's accept two bar- parties have different approaches, but there are different reasons for those approaches, and let's don't make the, the traditional trap that all models must do the same thing. Depending on these markets are very complex systems, there will be different approaches depending on what edges are being targeted in those markets, and we know there are lots of different edges. But each edge requires a different approach, and that almost requires a different philosophy for each different edge that's being targeted. I think this is really a great way
0: to explain it because you're right. Uh, and certainly on, 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 on this podcast, we, we talk to both type of, and we discuss both uh, approaches. I guess we've distilled it down uh, to uh, this: to to uh, you know, pos- uh, dynamic position sizing or not kind of thing. <laughs> but 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 actually, dynamic position sizing is not just correlation. It, that could you know, it's volatility. It's other things. But
1: but it's kind of the two camps we we've, we've, we've been focusing on. I, I tell you what, volatility adjusting would be. But dynamic position sizing, there's more complexity to dynamic position sizing. It's more related to the trend strength and those things. So I totally agree. But I'd I'd almost say volatility adjusting was dynamically opposed to the absolute momentum guy, if you know what I mean.
0: Yeah. But what's still funny to me is that when I go into one of these databases, and you and I obviously look at managers once uh, a month when we publish our reports, which, by the way, was just published a couple of days ago, uh, the July report. And I've said this many times, to a large extent, once you zoom out, I don't see massive differences in returns. Sure, there are some managers who are simply better. Let's face it, there are managers who produce a higher KGAR than others, even if you adjust for volatility. But the correlation in performance, yeah, there's gonna be a few months that where they look a little bit different, so on and so forth. But to a large extent, if I was looking at maybe the top 10 managers in the world and I looked over a 20 year return, they're not gonna be massively different. And that's what I always come back to thinking, okay, but there must be something that brings them together. And, and to me, that's these kind of golden rules uh, and we can define them a little bit different. But I think for me is that even, you, even the fact that we implement them slightly differently, the results are more or less the same. And that to me is, is what gives me the conviction in what we do, meaning the whole principle behind trend following is so sound that it creates these robust outcomes despite how we end up in,
1: implementing them in, in, you know, in, in, the, in the detail. But it's interesting we. We're targeting different edges so that we can just respect the fact these edges exist um, and it's very hard, uh, you know, I, as you say, when you look at the historical record, it's very hard to distinguish between the performance of both. It doesn't necessarily mean that they, they exist on a level playing field because we might see future conditions which really test both approaches we don't know. But certainly, historically, we've seen not much distinguishing between the two. What we can say is that there are certain ones that are smoother than others. Um, There are certain ones that are more volatile than others, smoother than others. We can say, yeah, pound for pound, over the historical regime, certain approaches might have outclassed others in their lifting power. Um, So, you know, there's two things going on here. There's lifting power and there's smoothness. Now, I'll go on because this this smoothness is an approach which is coming from it cross-sectionally. And the lumpiness is an approach that's coming from it from absolute momentum terms, time series. I just want to explain that a bit. So this is where a a gentleman by the name of Ole Peters, I'm going to bring this back into the frame, Neil, this topic called ergodicity. So when we look at um, statistics uh, that are generated from cross-sectional methods, um, these are what we call spatial statistics, spatial, uh, you know, what is the average across spatially those return streams? What is the, uh, what are the properties spatially across those return streams? And when we do a cross-section across return streams, we get these distributions uh, scene where we've got tails on either end and we've got a bell curve distribution. So if you can imagine when we take a cross-section, a knife that cross-sects those return streams, and then we reorientate those plots of that cross-section, we see a distribution. So um, often these quant models where you see these um, return streams over time series, um, they've got a, a at the end of the time series, Um, on the graph to the right of that, they've got a a spatial distribution of that time series reflected um, like we we normally think with with, um, a leptokurtic signature of that that distribution of ensemble states within those return streams. Um, So when you're looking at it spatially uh, and you're concerned with spatial statistics, the assumption is in economics is that spatially we can use the same statistics as we can use serially. Now, this has come from the old school of economics, and this has come from the assumption that um, the statistics used by most economic models, so we see these rampant in neoclassical economic models and also in econometric models, where um, they use things such as Markowitz's efficient frontier, the sharp ratio, standard deviations, all of these things to assess risk, etc. that's coming from this ergodic school. And what er- ergodicity is is imagine a gas that is released into a laboratory into a, a glass laboratory in under experimental conditions. And you see that over time, the gas molecules occupy every spatial state within that glass container. They are uniformly distributed over time at an equilibrium point everywhere in that that container. That's where spatially we call them ergodic. And what we can say is if we have an ergodic system where spatially uh, they exist at all points in the space of possible states... Then, if we have a time evolved system over a course of time, for instance, if we're releasing gas over a period of time into that room, over a long period of time, it achieves the same spatial state when we measure it in time evolution versus the spatial state it ends up in. So, when we have an equivalence between the spatial state where it's all diffused evenly right throughout that entire laboratory. Um, and it is equivalent to over a long period of time that system achieving that same state, the the economists say there's an equivalence there and because of that equivalence, I can disregard statistics looking at any time variable so they don't need to use calculus in their statistics and they can use that spatial um, statistics developed under equilibrium to say, because these two are equivalent, I don't need to use the harder maths of calculus to work out how the system evolves to reach that state. When they're equivalent, I can just use the spatial statistics from that to make all of my assumptions in economics. Now, that, that's the ergodic system. And that is frequent in certain classes of systems. We see that in physics labs, we said that the, the, the gas was a good example of an ergodic system. However, when we look at um, something like uh, the evolution of ice to water to gas, we see that ergodic properties are only present in one class of that system when it's a gas. When it's an ice and when it's water, we see that there are specific spatial conditions um, configurations, where it doesn't adopt the equilibrium state that the gas does in every possible spatial position, position of X, Y, and Z in that laboratory, the ice has a very spatially configured ordered arrangement that doesn't allow it to diffuse uniformly throughout that. The water has different properties, but also it is spatially segregated from the space of all possible states. So we see that when we look at certain classes of system that evolve from, and and uh, we often see this in almost all facets of living systems, universal systems, galaxies, complex systems, we see that they evolve over a period of time from a, a particular ordered state to another ordered state, to another ordered state, to another ordered state. In that evolution of that state, each of those ordered states is never exactly replicating the prior ordered state. It's a different ordered state. But between those ordered states, there are transition events that are disruptive to the prior ordered state. So in an evolutionary process serially across time, we see that a system inherently has to evolve. And that's why complex adaptive systems are not only complex they adapt over time and when we are, if we are forced to conclude that these financial markets are indeed complex adaptive systems we can't assume that they adopt ergodic properties we can't assume that at any state over that time evolution of that that complex adaptive system, we can't apply those ergodic statistics at different points in time. We can only apply them when that system reaches equilibrium. In periods where um, non-ergotic systems say, hey, in your um, economics where you said because they're equivalent I can uh, forget about history or forget about the time of that system, we're saying, Time is important. The the history matters. The history, the state of a system in history actually influences the future state of that trajectory of that system. So we get a landscape of conditional probabilities along serially, along that path of trajectories of that system. And this is where serial correlation becomes important. At certain periods of time, the trajectories of that system alter in direction. They manifest as significant transitions, significant changes over the course of that market's evolution over time, and so the the trend follower who is looking at absolute momentum It's looking for a class of momentum that exists through the nature of ordered change of a system as it evolves over the course of time. It's not looking at the correlation properties that exist across systems, that's spatially. It's looking at the endogenous properties within that market that actually have cause and effect impacts along its trajectory, preceding causes impact future effects cause and effect, all the way along that. So when we look spatially across systems, we often talk about, we're looking at correlation properties, how one system correlates with another system. And as you and I know, Niels, when we look at correlation matrices, at one point in time, if we take a snapshot cross-sectionally, the correlations might be different to say six months later when we do another cross-section. Now, this is because the when looked spatially we're assuming that uh, these return streams are independent in nature and we assume that they're not connected. We assume that we can apply principles of statistical independence to something in corn to something in forex to something in here. We assume that they are, They're working under their own mechanics, but there are certain relationships that change the correlations between them because there are sort of dependencies that exist within them. But when we look at it spatially, it's very difficult to decipher because these correlations change. So this is where um, the concern I have with cross-sectional techniques as a risk management measure is how... How sure are we that the correlation properties across cross cross sectionally are causal in nature? And this is because we can certainly have uh, what appears to be cause and effect between separate return streams that appear to be independent to each other, but often we find that um, two very similar things. Um, might provide at a particular point in time sufficient offsets in their trajectories that they appear to be uncorrelated. So one is going up, one is going down, the two offset. When we look at the correlation properties between those two, even though they might be causally connected, they will show a zero correlation because of the way the trajectories evolve over time. And if we don't take time into consideration, it can lead us into possible um, statistical traps um, with some of the assumptions we make. And if we recognise that economics has been built on classical economics, built on the foundations of Markowitz, standard deviation, sharp smoothness, these sort of things, We start to see where maybe some of the problems arise with those properties because what those statistical methods are doing is they're making simple assumptions. Because they've got to analyze so much data, they've got to make critical simple assumptions. Some of the simple assumptions are that the general properties of every return stream or every market are homogenous in nature. In other words, they are all very similar together. And because of that homogenous property, we can therefore do a very broad statistical technique, forgetting the time evolution of those systems, using it statistically, to say that uh, in broad terms, risk is smoothness. Risk is smoothness. It's not recognizing that in more detailed, more realistic terms, that trajectories of the the system constituents can be vastly different or similar to each other in how they evolve across time to produce these correlation offsets or correlation amplifications or um, create a minefield for the person seeking a risk solution in terms of correlations if they're not looking at how the cause and effect relationships of that systems and systems actually evolve in relation to each other which brings us into a very complex field, a very complex field. So I'll I'll pause here if you've got any questions before I go on. Well, I'm always
0: nervous to ask any questions when you throw in that word ergodicity because I still struggle with that. But today's explanation helped me um, uh, a a lot. I'm thinking now of just gas, uh, water, and ice, and then I have a good idea. However, and I I don't know, honestly, if I'm – on the right track here. But I did ask a mutual friend of ours recently on the podcast a very simple question. And that is, if is, let's just say we had a portfolio that was super simple, consisting of stocks and bonds. We can be long both, we can be short both, and we can be long one and short the other. In a world where you don't pay attention to correlation, you would assume that risk is the same because you're just taking the trade based on the signal. But in a world where you pay attention to correlation, position size will change based on the correlation. So for me, that's kind of the crux of the matter. Can you say, I mean, so in a sense, that's that's what it comes down to. Uh, Either you say, no, if I'm long both or short both, that's a different risk than being long one and short the other all things being equal. If correlations change between them, which they do from time to time, yeah, then it makes sense for me to adjust for that. What you're saying is, as far as I remember, you're saying, well, actually, this correlation stuff, that introduces some risks. But maybe the people who are using correlation, they would say, well, actually, no, we are adapting our risks for the portfolio Based on the changes in correlation, and therefore, quote unquote, we are more in tune with what the actual risk of the portfolio is.
1: Yeah, and this is why I'm loving this conversation, Neil, because it's going to force me further into the story. Okay, but the, the key thing you've identified is exactly right. So there are people there that think, yes. I'm going to look at the correlations because I'm going to manage risk. I'm going to adjust my position sizes because I'm taking risk into account because I recognize that risk across these return streams must be considered um, together in a portfolio as opposed to Rich over here who's saying, hold on, I don't take these correlations into account. So Rich over here is saying, why doesn't he take these correlations into account? And he's saying, because Rich has already got these risk mitigation systems in his models. He uses stops, he uses trailing stops for each of his return streams, and therefore he recognises that um, the outliers that possibly um, exist in those return streams can arise even though you're trading highly correlated markets. Okay. I think, no, that, that is, that's
0: beautiful because – in one sense you could say if i uh, understand you correctly that actually using hard stops allows you to ignore correlation it makes it simpler and i and, and in to a large extent i would say yeah i accept that i accept that however uh you could then on the other hand say when you want to use continuous signals you need to use other measures of Um, risk management, that forces you really to use dynamic position sizing. Exactly. Yes. Exactly.
1: And, and yeah, yeah, their models demand that they must do it that way. Our models demand we must do it our way. We see this as a debate, but it's not a debate. It's not a debate, and that's always been my point. different approaches.
0: Exactly. That's always been my view that actually – and this is also why I sometimes say – you can't say which one is better, even though we know people who like to say that one is better than the other. I don't think you can say that. They're just different, like you started with.
1: I must admit, um, I am a Nazi when it comes to absolute returns. Um, uh, you know that. I, I, I'm I'm like Jerry. I'm this 100% trend following plus nothing. Go back to classic. Um and I come across forcefully, I do totally appreciate where you're coming from, and you're taking a more logical proposition, but my philosophy demands that I'm a religious fanatic with what I'm doing. Um, so if you could imagine, in my world, um, and this, I'm going to continue the story, Niels, because I think we're really getting somewhere in this this podcast in resolving this dilemma and this never-ending debate that we're all having about position sizing and all of this sort of stuff. I'm, I'm hoping that we can resolve this together as champions that we resolve this at debate. least until next week <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> So um, we talked about um, ergotic and non ogotic and that's sort of very fuzzy, wuzzy. Not quite sure where we are, but I'm going to explain it now in terms that perhaps we can. So Olo Peters um, said, "Here's a gambling scenario. Let's assume we we um, flick a coin, and if we we get heads and we win, um, we get 50% of the original bet of our our, our bet. If we lose, we lose 40%. Now." someone thinking spatially will say 50% win, 40% loss. That's a good bet. And Ole Peters will say, hold on, champion. Depends on what system you're using that for because he said, if, for instance, you start with $100 as your your initial stake in that bet, you you, you run these sort of independent trials with coins, Um, when you do this over a time series as opposed to spatially, You see that every one of those return streams goes to risk of ruin. And yet, in expectation terms, 50% win, 40% loss, in expectation value statistically, spatially, shows that there should be a win uh, over the course of time. Over the long time, there should be a statistical edge with that. Why is this? And this is because non-ergotic systems... Apply conditional variables to those statistics. So remember, we said we started with $100. That is a conditional statement of which we apply a statistical result to. There's a condition, a a prior cause to the effect, cause and effect. This conditional variable, this conditional statement actually physically changes the trajectory of the outcomes in certain non ergodic systems. So, I explained the the gas in an ergodic system and non-ergodic systems have these different properties. They do not occupy all spatial states um, under assessment. So, where the gas was uniformly distributed, these ones curiously are restricted to certain spatial geometries. Really weird. And this is what know Peters found. And now, this is where I picked up Niels, and I, I recommend this strongly to your listeners to read this book called The Primacy of Doubt by a a mathematician and physicist called Tim Palmer. And Tim Palmer released this about six months ago. It's a magnificent book, highly rated uh, from what I've I've read the the reader's comments on. And he um, is deeply involved in forecasting complex weather systems, um, recognised in this field And he is wanting to take his knowledge of the weather and uh, uh, chaotic properties of the weather into economics and into other complex systems that he feels are similar to weather systems, cloud formations, those sort of things. And uh, there was a gentleman he wrote about in his book called Edward Lorentz, a very famous US mathematician who started looking at these particular class of non ergodic systems that were complex and adaptive. And he used the weather in his assessment. And a lot of people at the time he was doing this were saying, we all know weather's complex. and But this is a case of we don't have sufficient instrumentation or equipment or computers to render simplicity in that complexity. But if we apply our theories of what we have at the time, to these um, complex weather patterns with enough computer power, we'll be able to resolve it. They, they viewed complexity as being something that was resolvable with enough computer power. However, Edward Lorentz then said, all right, he sort of opposed this viewpoint because he thought there was something more indeterministic going on with the weather system that couldn't be resolved through the power of computers. So he um, uh, in, uh, rendered um, the, um, the weather systems, the, the uh, forecasting accuracy of weather systems, down to three very simple variables. He simplified the entire experiment on the basis that, well, the argument was it's just a matter of complexity that's making this unresolvable. If he simplified all of that down to three variables That reflected the general characteristics or system tendencies of the weather, if that was still unresolvable, that would give him a tick box saying this isn't just because it's so intensely complex. He's saying there is something fundamental going on in this complexity that is making it indeterminate. So he came down with these three magnificent formulas. They're they're nonlinear differential um, formulas, which uh, they cannot be resolved into a single formula. Now, the fact that they cannot be resolved in a single formula tells us something in physics terms that's very important about that system. If you cannot resolve the um, over very long-term data sample something down to a single formula, that means it is inherently indeterministic, non-periodic. If you can resolve the system mechanics down to a single formula, you know that it is periodic in nature. It will return to its beginning state and it will have periodic properties. But if you cannot, then that tells you fundamentally that system can never be resolved in a single formula. You might have predictability over a 1,000 years, but over the next 1,000 years or 10,000 years or 20,000 years, it is inherently indeterministic. So he was, was accoladed with the production of these formulas and, and referred to as a man who found chaos, The man who found chaotic properties in these complex systems. And when you have um, when you're looking at different classes of system, there are four particular classes of system. There are what we call simple systems, which are the known knowns, the pendulum um, the single pendulum that's oscillating to and fro from left and right to left and right is explained by very simple mechanics, predictable periodic mechanics, totally resolvable known knowns. When you get to complicated systems, that's what we refer to as known unknowns. In other words, it's complicated, but provided we apply these simple theories to it, Um, over the course of time, with sufficient computer power, we can resolve that. That's a known unknown system. There's a third class of system called the um, complex system. This is an unusual class of system because this is the system that is inherently complex. Now, the first thing is this system can be broken down into two broad categories, that which expresses complexity but can be resolved through predictable methods that's part A of a complex system, that which is complex but cannot be resolved through predictable methods. They're indeterministic in origin. So in the complex system, there's a bifurcation of two possible systems. One that you can throw down into the predictable class, which we've already described as that being described by simple systems, complicated systems, and half of the third class of complex system. And then The class that we can't um, identify as being periodic in nature, they're effectively non-periodic, they're indeterministic, they then fall into a fourth class of system, which is called chaotic systems. Now, chaotic systems are unknowable. This is incredibly important. What we mean by unknowable is indeterministic. They might exhibit predictable properties for a period of time, but then they can exhibit chaotic properties, then go back to more predictable properties, chaotic properties. You can't get a single formula to resolve them. You need differential formulas, nonlinear differential formulas. And what that shows, now, this is where it gets exciting, because now we can see a division between those that predict and those that don't predict with their models. Those that predict are going to be highly successful with the simple class of models The complicated parts of models and half of the complex models, they're going to do very well because they've got predictable methods. The price-following methods, such as the trend-following methods, are going to do very well in half of the complex models, which are indeterministic, and the chaotic models because they are applying non-predictive processes to trading these markets in highly complex systems that can exhibit predictable and chaotic properties. So, Lorentz, what he found when he examined those three very simple nonlinear differential equations using calculus is he found that the trajectories of those three simple nonlinear differential equations in what we call state space, so I've explained how in ergodic systems if we release a gas into the the lab, it occupies all spatial states. Imagine those states as being X, Y, Z. It occupies everywhere within that entire cube. So what Lorentz found with his three differential models is when he plotted the trajectories of them, they were confined to a very unusual geometry that was not um, reflected across all spatial states. It was being confined by what we call a strange attractor, which is a particular geometry that says that. Um, the trajectories can fall into a couple of classes. They can fall into one lobe of the geometry or the other lobe of the geometry. And when you look at this geometry, lo and behold, it looks very much like a butterfly. You see two lobes in this spatial geometry. It's a bit like a a manifold, you know, a surface, something really curious. But something is preventing that trajectory from occupying all spatial states. There is some... Strong geometry uh, in that system, which is con- constraining the possible trajectories of the paths of those states, which is fascinating. And when he looked at that that strange attractor geometry, he saw that it was what we call fractal in nature. It exhibits spatial properties at all scales, from the small to the large. And in nature, we see this fractal geometry emerging in all all areas of nature the growth of a nautilus shell um, with a successive implementation of rings in a tree um, in all aspects of nature in the universe. And this is where um, uh, in uh, some of the biggest theories we have about these complex systems, like the theories of gravitation in this universe, general relativity, that is looking at a similar property where if you look at Einstein's um, equation of general relativity, It's a simple equation, which is a nonlinear series of differential equations, but the properties of the broad foundations of the equation, which is this breakdown of nonlinear differential geometry, is that the distribution of energy in the the universe by matter and where energy exists in the, the distribution, spatial distribution, is equivalent to the spatial geometry of the universe. That's the left and right hand sides of the general relativity equation. Spatial geometry is influencing the distribution of energy and matter. Energy and matter is influencing the spatial geometry. Can you see how the spatial geometry and the constituents of that system are starting to interact with each other? And, and this is what um, Lorentz found with his chaotic systems and this strange attractor. The spatial geometry or where the states of that that system could occupy spatially was being controlled or configured by large-scale structure, which was configuring where those orbits or those trajectories could actually go. And he was finding this relationship between the geometry and the, the mechanics of the system. And when we go into thermodynamics, we see this. This is where it gets exciting, because when we look at thermodynamics of complex systems, we start reducing our, our precision in investigating the dynamics of cloud systems and any of these complex systems. We start getting down to the elementary fundamental constituents of those systems. It starts losing properties that are present as a collective. So, when we look at collections of atoms together, we get this concept called heat arising. Heat is an emergent property arising from the, the vibrations between the atoms themselves. It's not actually found in the, 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 when we describe the properties of the individual atom, there is no such thing called heat. It's only when we get collections of these things together. So in thermodynamics, we see another property called um, resistance, friction. Um, viscosity. In clouds, we see these concepts called viscosity, which is spatially stopping the gas molecules from being everywhere. It's restricting them. Now, a lot of people think that's noise. It's not. It's actually a very necessary accompaniment to a system which constrains the spatial states or the spatial geometry of that system. And when we see ice Uh, melting into water, we see the release of heat. Now, if we looked at that that heat coming away, we'd say, that's noise, random. So if we look at things spatially in that system and we see heat in our uh, observations of our universe, we say, random, not important. However, the importance of that is that when we reverse the symmetry back to the ice, we've got to add that level of heat back to that water to bring it back to a symmetry where it can be represented as ice. The ordered state of ice and the ordered state of water are different ordered states. To bring one to the other, we've got to find the difference in those states and add it back to that system to bring it back to that prior state. So when we look at things serially in time evolving, we can see how, These systems can start with very simple, fundamental, nonlinear rules and evolve into these fantastic, complex structures called universe, called living systems, called our bodies, called the financial markets. There's a lot of study here in the physics world um, where they're starting to use what we call agent-based models and where they're starting to say, let's start with the simplest core rules. And a gentleman by the name of um, Steve Wolfram, Professor Steve Wolfram, is um, has got a whole research division looking at how can we evolve these complex systems that exhibit properties that we say are very similar to systems that we see in the real world. But let's start with very simple asymmetric rules. So a bit like Ed Lorenz, they start with nonlinear differential geometry with three very simple rule-based systems. And because they're doing that, as the system evolves over an iterative process, step after step after step, complex structures are being built within that architecture as it evolves through time. But all of it, Niels, is correlated. The whole system, every relationship in that system is correlated when we look at things in cause and effect terms. We also notice that the spatial envelope, the possibility of things to exist within that system, are all constrained within those very simple rules that we used at the outset, that defines a space of possible states in the future that that whole system can occupy. It means that there are states outside that system architecture that can't exist because they are not defined within the architecture of those simple rules. And so people that say that there is such a thing as noise or randomness, they're not looking closely enough. We can actually find that In these complex models, when we add noise back to systems, we actually get more information out of that system, which is bizarre. Everyone's saying, where's that coming from? Noise is random. But when we look at things this way, Niels, we see there is nothing random about this. This is the glory and majesty of a system in action. We've just got to look at close enough in an evolving landscape of iterative succession. So when we look at a rainforest, when we look at our bodies, you know, how does the body develop with this amazing structure with hearts, lungs, brains, skin, skeleton, etc., from these simple rules starting off as an egg with a bit of DNA in there that gives the morphology, but it's not the morphology that says what's going to occur. It's how the body evolves and how the epigenetics and the chemistry interact with that, that, that rules, the rules defined by the DNA that gives this glorious structure. And when I say can I define risk in a human body and you say well I can't use a sharp ratio for that Niels the only way I can define risk for a human body is to know the holistic state of all aspects of that system. How good is its heart? How good is its lungs? How good is its blood? How good is its skeleton? This isn't sharp ratio in action Niels. This is this is wisdom in action. And so when people say they start looking at our models saying how freakily classic they are and how ancient they are and they've got to move on with the times, we're saying, guys, guys, you're missing something here. You're missing something that we see. We see the majesty of how these things unfold in this system. Because you're taking a reduction-y approach, you're using one side of your brain, mate. You're using the left side of your brain. You're getting down to the The detail, you're missing all of the connections on the right side of your brain, which is saying spirituality is important, religion's important, love's important, correlations are important, the world is connected, the rainforests are beautiful. That's the right side of your brain saying to your left side of the brain, "Eh, eh, 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 come on. That that's the accurate part, but what about the connected part? And we're saying, look at this holistically. Because if you can look at it holistically, you're, you're going to forget about Sharp. You're going to forget about this. You're going to look at the track record of experience, of things like done capital management, of things like Jerry Chesapeake, the 30, 40-year track record. That's that's a health statement. That's like looking at a human body and saying, how healthy is it? We can look at the track record of a fund manager with our history and we say, that is a statement that says something about risk, managing risk, uh, which is unseen. These these managers have existed for 40 years not knowing what the next step is. It's not like in a backtest environment where we're assessing risk for a sharp ratio. These people have lived risk. These people have lived it, and it's experience and track record. So when people ask me, what sort of risk metric can you use to compare your programs, I say, guys, track record. Go and talk to them. Get to know what's under the hood. You know, do your due diligence, understand all aspects, live and breathe what they do, understand what they do. That's how you deal with risk. You can't use a metric to assess risk, for goodness sake. You know, that's the eh, 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 of your brain working when you've got to look at the correlations, you've got to look at the important things in dealing with risk.
0: Okay. Thank you. <laughs> now, now, there may be one or two. In addition to myself, that may not have gotten all of this the first time around, but I appreciate the effort. However, so we may come back to this, of course, in maybe more simplified way. I think I kind of understand sort of the the key message, but I also sit back a little bit, maybe confused, where I'm thinking, well, if you end up by saying, go and speak to the people behind Don for example, then I'm thinking, are we now putting more uh, weight on the people or the models? Because, of course, the people haven't been there, you know, all 48 years that we've been existing as a firm, while in my little mind, I'm thinking, well, actually, again, going back to these golden rules, there's something about these rules that are able to take into account what you're saying, that there are some forces... That we cannot see n- n- with the naked eye, but somehow these rules are able to capture this, if I can use that word, and adapt accordingly. Um, but I have to say, I am not going to attempt to simplify what you just laid out. Um, but I think,
1: we,
0: <laughs> but I think, in fairness, we need to try and simplify it as we go along because I think you are seeing things that very few people are seeing, but I'm not sure we, this time around, and please don't take it personal, I think we may have lost quite a few people in that explanation, but I think
1: if people get it, it's an aha moment. Yeah, yeah. And yes, look, in the light of the fact that we don't have – a large amount of time to discuss these things. Um, you know, I, I was forced to sort of push through um, to get to a conclusion. And look, I do apologise if I have lost people there, but um, all I'm saying is that, um, you know, these systems that we negotiate, these markets, okay, industry, economics and the industry has tended to use the same solutions for a long period of time to assess risk. So at the moment... SHARP is a very big instrument used to assess or compare different funds together. Or visualise risk, yeah. Or visualise risk. And I'm saying industry recognising that um, you've got it wrong for the past ever since industry has existed with the crashes, which I could list, you know, 40 different crashes since over 400 years or whatever. They never get it right. They're always going back to their economic models. They're going back to their economic models. What I'm saying is that industry, aren't you as guilty as, for instance, um, uh, you know, you say SHARP is an accepted measure or industry. You're saying SHARP is the way we assess performance between between funds, but I'm saying, yes, but we've got long-term capital management that had a very high SHARP. Uh, We've got... um, uh, what's his name, Ponzi scheme man. Um, oh, yeah, made of. Uh, made of Bernie, mate. Now, that was a good sharp ratio. Um, you know, we've got martingale approaches that have had a very good sharp ratio. So, you know, is sharp ratio the thing that we take into account recognising these failures? Um, is industry, even though they've got at the bottom of their disclaimer about, um, you know, um, They've got their typical disclaimer saying, uh, beware uh, in relation to risk. Um, you know, these statements, can uh, you know, might be forward projecting or whatever, but uh, we, we never know what risk events are going to occur or whatever, the typical c- disclaimer. And yet, on the other side, they're endorsing a ratio that has demonstrated time and time again how much it's failed. So, I'm saying, industry, aren't you as guilty... Um, Are you guilty um, in not recognising risk the way the trend follower sees risk? I'm saying, isn't this your problem? It's not our problem. Um, And I'm saying, why should we use these metrics to evaluate our performance against the other guys when so clearly you've got it wrong? Um, So... That, that's what I'm saying right and I think uh, And I think
0: that is a fair point because I think I've not really come across any trend follower in my career that says, oh yeah, we love the SHARP, it's a great tool. But they all say, well, we have to use SHARP uh, because that's what our investors uh, or potential investors are looking at. But I think what we can do, Rich, is next time we can maybe try and simplify some of this even further, but then also maybe we can... Maybe you can think about ways that you feel would then actually be better, uh, where we hopefully can find something that has, you know, less risk of disappointing people. Because as you rightly say, the Sharp ratio, we know it's flawed. and maybe, maybe we have to accept that there is nothing, there is no such thing as a perfect measure. Maybe that's fine. Maybe there's a couple of measures we have to use. But isn't validated
1: track record a better measure than any of them? Would you say that? Validated track record? Is that the best measure? That's a good question that
0: I obviously had no idea that you are going to ask me, so it's not... So some, <laughs> some, I'm, 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 I'm spending a little bit of time talking here while I'm thinking of a an, it, Well, a, it's of a easy for someone
1: like Dunn, who's been... they've been going since 1974. No, but here's the thing. Day.
0: Here's the thing. Here's the thing. What a validated track record shows, and even if we take our own of, you know, almost 50 years, what it shows is a couple of things. I think it shows that we embrace a robust methodology, but it also shows that we have people who are not just very good at what they do, um, but that we're also very disciplined about the way we go about it. Um, And that we have kept that DNA as a firm, because as I said, it's not the same people in the 70s that are running the firms now in 2023. Does it show
1: something about the future? I think is what you're asking. Well well it tells and I don't me know, you, you raised a good point. You said the the constituents of the firm have changed over the course of time. So that tells me that the system is robust because it allows for a change of its constituents. So the system and the process is very robust. Yeah, true. But it but but of course you we also have to recognize that
0: those people who have come later have been incredibly good at evolving the system because no such system stays the same so so I can't say really um lift my hand and say yeah I mean because we've done well for 48 years we will always do well I don't think we can say that but what we but, but what we can say at least is that we have through a mindset through a uh, ideology through a belief in a certain, for lack of a better word, set of golden rules implemented the way we feel is the best, we have, in fact, been able to navigate incredibly different market environments. And that is what, personally, on my side, of course, will give me the conviction that in an unknown future, in an uncertain future, I believe we will continue to be able to do that because it will be no different to the future we saw back in the 1974. That's, the, that's, the, that's and, my and that's point.
1: What, see, as an investor, that's exactly the statement I'd be looking for. I wouldn't be looking at your Sharpe ratio. I'd be looking about the conviction you just expressed in your survivability and endurance and adaptability. The statements you just made would be my risk assessment of you and your firm. Um, Etc. So, and these things can't be quantified into a eh, 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 you know bit of data. This stuff is much more comprehensive than that.
0: Yes, and of course, this is why we need to know the people well that we um, that hopefully will end up, you know, entrusting their hard-earned money uh, with with a firm like ours or any other firm. This is why it's important for them to know people. This is why, if I can throw that in there uh, as, a, as a late um, curveball is why I am concerned about this embracing of, oh, now we can just invest in CTA through an ETF where we have no idea who the managers are. We don't need to know who the people are, but it's easy for us to buy. And I would hazard to say, no. I think that's we, live in, we that's a we, danger to me. It's a danger to me as well because I think you as an investor, okay, maybe maybe a product like Andrews is okay not to know because he's not replicating one manager. he's doing just the industry, even though as everybody knows who so listen to us, I have my concerns about that methodology. However, I uh, take great comfort in that when we as a firm go through difficult times, which we will do, like any trend follower, that the people who invest with us, we know them. They can call us, we can call them, we can explain what's going on. Uh, I think if, if it's just a ticker code and you have no relationship deep down, we're going to end up with a lot of investors who end up buying the high and selling the low because they have nothing to relate the performance too. That's my concern. But I do recognize that, unfortunately, in order to have a direct relationship with a manager, it usually comes with that caveat that you have to be an accredited investor because we are not allowed to talk to retail investors. And this is, of course, it opens up another kind of worms. That is that uh, regulators often make it more difficult for the people who need it the most to get these strategies into their portfolios, which is another problem which unfortunately we can't solve today since we've already been going for almost 90 minutes, Rich.
1: And yes, I've got to apologize to your viewers if I lost them. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, no.
0: People will tune in for as long as they want. Um, and I think when they know uh, that there is some nuggets being being shared, um, hopefully they'll stay uh, for the full ride. Rich, this was amazing. Uh, as I said, I think we will try and, and that will be our challenge to make this even clearer as we go along. And this is a journey. I mean, we've been doing this for, you know, almost 10 years now on the podcast, more than 700 episodes, I'm sure we've published and we still learn new things in these conversations. Um, So whether you have 49 years of uh, experience uh, or nine years of experience, uh, we're all students
1: of trend following. Exactly. This is the meaning of life we're trying to get across in a short episode. There we go. (laughs)
0: Absolutely. absolutely. Not as fun as the Monty Python uh, guys, um, but we we try. Anyways, hopefully, if you're still listening to us and you do have another five minutes uh, of your day, head over to one of your preferred podcast platforms, leave a rating and review. If you don't know how to do it, you can go to toptradersonplug.com forward slash review and there's a guide to how you can help us grow the podcast. Exciting news from me as we wrap up uh, and that is next week um, I will be joined by a new co-host but not a new co-host that people are not familiar with because it's the one and only Katie Kaminsky. She will join us. She will be part of the rotation. So if you have any questions for Katie of course she is the one who coined the crisis alpha. So maybe that will be a topic that will come up from time to time. She had a great explanation, by the way, in our uh, CTA miniseries of what it really means because that's also been something that's been uh, maybe uh, forgotten. But anyways, you can email email me at info at toptradersonplot.com. From Rich and me, thanks ever so much for sticking with us, listening to us. We look forward to being back next week. Until next time, take care of yourself